Okay. Um, <clears throat> today's topic, as you know, is mindfulness of breathing. And the best way to start, of course, is to do it. So let's do some meditation. be aware of your breathing. <clears throat> being aware involves two things. One, keep the breath in mind. And two, you watch the breath. But to bring the proper attitude to the breath, let's start first with thoughts of goodwill. Because that's the underlying motivation for the whole teaching. Goodwill is a wish for happiness, for release from stress and suffering, both for yourself and for the people around you, i.e. all over the world. So just express that thought in your mind, may I be happy, may I find true happiness. And remind yourself that this is not a selfish thought. True happiness is something that comes from within. It doesn't take anything away from anyone else. The more happiness you find within, the less of a burden you are to other people, and the more happiness you can share with them. So the next thought is wishing goodwill for the people around you. Start first with people who are close to your heart, your family, your very close friends. May they find true happiness too. And spread those thoughts out in ever-widening circles. People you know well and like. People you like even though you don't know them so well. about. And people you don't like. Remember, you don't have to like people to wish that they'd be happy, that they find true happiness. If more people found true happiness in their lives, the world would be a much better place. So don't let your likes and dislikes limit your goodwill.
and spread thoughts of goodwill to people you don't even know. And not just people, living beings of all kinds, east, west, north, south, above and below, out to infinity. May we all find true happiness in our lives. And now bring your attention back to the breath. And bring that goodwill to the breath as well. In other words, allow the breath to come in and go out in any way that feels comfortable for the body. It might be long or short, deep or shallow. You can think of the whole body breathing in, the whole body breathing out. Whatever rhythm or texture of breathing feels best right now, explore a bit to see what feels good. And when you find something that does feel good, stick with it. <coughs> if after sticking with it for a while it doesn't feel good, then you can change. Try to keep on top of what feels best for the body and the breath right now. two qualities as we do this. One is mindfulness, the ability to keep something in mind. Right now we're keeping the breath in mind. And then alertness, keeping watch over what's actually going on, knowing the breath when it comes in, when it goes out, knowing whether it's comfortable or not. And at the same time, knowing whether your mind is staying with the breath. If you catch it slipping off, okay, bring it back. Slips off again, bring it back again. Slips off ten times, a hundred times, bring it back ten times, a hundred times. Don't get discouraged. The fact that you've caught it is a good sign. So allow them, yourself to come back to the breath with a sense of goodwill. Don't think of the breath as an enemy. If you're an enemy with your own breath, you're in really bad shape. And then the third quality we're developing is something called ardency. The Pali term is atapa. In other words, as soon as you catch the mind slipping off, you bring it back. 
Don't let it wander around, sniffing the flowers, looking at the sky. We've got work to do here, but it's good work. When you are with the breath, this quality of ardency means that you try to be as sensitive as possible to how the breathing feels. these three qualities working together, mindfulness, alertness, and ardency, you've got a foundation. What in Pali is called Vihara Dhamma, it means a home for the mind. place where you can stay, where you feel sheltered, protected, and at ease. feels comfortable, then you can start exploring in more detail the process of breathing throughout the body. A good place to start is down around the navel. Just kind of locate your abdomen. Where is it right now? Among all the sensations of the body you may feel. Which ones correspond to the abdomen? And then watch it for a while as you breathe in and breathe out. And if you notice any sense of tension or tightness in that part of the body, allow it to relax. So that no tension builds up there as you breathe in and you don't hold on to any tension as you breathe out. And at the same time, you don't try to squeeze the end of the in-breath or squeeze the end of the out-breath. If you want, you can think of breath energy coming in and out of the body, right there at the navel. attention up to the solar plexus, 
and follow the same three steps there. In other words, one, locate that part of the body in your awareness. You don't have to be too precise. Two, watch it for a while as you breathe in and breathe out. And then three, if you notice any sense of tension or tightness in that part of the body, allow it to relax. Think of it dissolving away in the breath. attention up to the middle of the chest and follow the same three steps there. your attention to the base of the throat.
and then to the middle of the head. You focus on the head, try not to put too much pressure on it. You can think of the breath coming in, going out of the head from all directions, not just in and out through the nose. In other words, think of it coming in and out the eyes, the ears, in from the back of the head, down from the top of the head. Gently working through any patterns of tension, any bands of tension you may have around the head, in the face, in the jaws. Working through those and just lifting them away. Think of the breath coming in and out from the back, back of the skull, right at the base of the skull where it meets the neck. This is pretty counterintuitive, but it is in a very important spot when you're dealing with the breath energy in the body, because this is tension central in the body. Think of the breath coming in there and just going down the spine, like melted butter, just dissolving away everything any tension, any tightness you feel in that part of the body.
Now, if you're meditating on your own, you could continue the survey of the body at your own pace. Down the back, out the legs. And starting again at the back of the neck, going down the shoulders, down the arms, out to the fingers. Until you'd covered the whole body. You could do that as many times as you like, starting again at the navel, going through the whole body once again, second time, third time, until you're ready to settle down. But for the time being, let's settle down right now. Find a spot, any one of the spots we focused on just now, the navel, the solar plexus, the middle of the chest, base of the throat, middle of the head, back of the neck. Any that feels most comfortable to stay focused on, feels most congenial. Allow your attention to settle there, and then think of it spreading out from that spot to fill the whole body. So you're aware of the whole body breathing in, the whole body breathing out. And then try to maintain that sense of centered but broad awareness. Each time you breathe in, each time you breathe out. It will have a tendency to shrink, so think whole body every time you breathe in, whole body every time you think out every time you breathe out.
before you leave meditation, think thoughts of goodwill once more. Whatever sense of calm or respite you felt for the past half hour. Think of dedicating it to all living beings in all directions, out to infinity. May we all find peace and calm in our lives. And before you open your eyes, remember there is a skill to opening your eyes at the end of meditation. The mind has a tendency, as soon as the eyes open, to go rushing out and survey the room, the world outside. But it is possible to be aware of the world outside and yet to stay fully inhabiting your body. So as much as you can throughout the day, try to stay with this sense of being at ease, being, being friends with your breath, fully inhabiting the body, as aware of the breath as you can be. Let the discussion be on the fringes of your awareness. Let the breath fill the center. Okay, now open your eyes. Does everyone have the reading material? Some new people came in. For those of you who are not acquainted with the center, there are bathrooms in the back, the back entrance, a third bathroom over here with a handicap sign. If both, all three bathrooms are filled and it's a real emergency, there's a bathroom up the stairs? Real emergency, okay. Definite emergency. Okay. It's, okay. Um, we have no window exits. <laughs> there are door exits here. <laughs> And you cannot le- use your cushions as flotation devices. <laughs> Let's hope you don't need them. <clears throat> okay. Today we're going to do something different from the way, at least I've run my classes here in the past. Essentially, we're just going to be going over one discourse. 
Mindfulness of Breathing, the Anapanasati Sutta, Majjhimindagaya 118. Um, these are the Buddha's most detailed instructions on breath. In fact, his most detailed instructions on meditation anywhere in the canon. And so for that immediate purpose, it's good to take this discourse and look at it in detail. And at the same time, to look at some of the other issues that we ha- you might find in reading one of these old discourses. I mean, after all, this is something 2,500 years old, as far as we know. And it's good to know some of the, the background in, in some of this literature, so that if you want to read other discourses, you have an idea of how to approach literature that was addressed to monks in another part of the world, very different circumstances, but all facing the same problem that we all face. In other words, there's suffering that we cause ourselves unnecessarily in life. This is part of the solution to that problem. Let's just start on page one, mindfulness of breathing. The Pali word, anapanasati. Some people have translated as mindfulness with breathing, in the sense that you're not focusing only on your breath you're going to be focusing on other things as well. And then there's that word mindfulness, sati. Um, I ran into someone recently who said they couldn't find the word mindfulness in their dictionary. It's a strange Buddhist invention. Actually, it was a solution to a dilemma that was encountered several decades back when they were starting to translate these discourses. What does this word sati mean? In the canon, it's defined as the ability to remember, the ability to keep something in mind. It doesn't refer to specific memories, but it means to the mind's capacity to hold something in mind. Um, and the closest that could be found in English, this one translator, uh, Rice Davis, was mindfulness. It's probably related to the old Christian injunction, be ever mindful of the needs of others, i.e. keep them in mind. Don't forget them. Mindfulness, however, is also taught together with another quality, as I mentioned just now, which is sampajanya. <laughs> Aware of the fact that there is a car alarm going off. That's something. <laughs> Actually, sampajanya is more related to your awareness of what you're doing, your own actions. When you do something, you're, re- you're aware of what you're doing. At the same time, you're aware of the results. And so you've got a combination of two things here going with the word, under the word mindfulness, i.e. the ability to keep something in mind. In this case, we're going to be keeping the breath in mind as we practice. And not only that, but you keep in mind that there are certain tasks to be done while you're focused on the breath. There are 16 steps in all. And beginning with step number three, you start training yourself. I mean, there's going to be an actual intentional element. There's a sutta that I appended on the back here you can look at it later, where the Buddha asks the monks, you know, how many of you are practicing mindfulness of breathing? And this one monk says, I am. And the Buddha asks him, how do you do that? And the monk says, well, I put aside all thoughts of um, desire and aversion related to the past and the future and focus just on being mindful of the breath as it comes in, mindful of the breath as it goes out. And the Buddha says, there is that kind of mindfulness of breathing, but that's not the way he taught it. It's not just being in the present. And then he goes ahead and he lists the 16 steps of breath meditation. And each one, if there's an element of being aware of the breath, keeping the breath in mind, and also keeping in mind that you're going to do something intentional 
together in conjunction with the breath. So this might expand your notion of what mindfulness means. For many of us, we've been taught mindfulness means acceptance of the present, um, bare awareness of the present moment, without any agendas, total equanimity, non-reactivity. But the way the Buddha teaches it, it's more keeping a task in mind. And you have to remember that in the Buddha's teaching, intention is the big element in, in the mind. It's what shapes more than anything else. Shapes our experience, i.e. intention is your karma. This is how the teaching on karma is related to meditation. He wants you to keep your, a certain intention in mind so that you can see the power of intention and to realize how your present intentions, which may be shaping the present moment for the purposes of who knows what. Um, but in this case, you're trying to use your intentions to shape your awareness for the purpose of keeping the mind on the path to the end of suffering. So, so that's unpacking just that one word, anapanasati keeping the breath in mind with being mindful of the breath and also being mindful of certain intentions that you're going to pursue with each and every breath. So, we, won't, we won't take every word in the sutta in such detail. <laughs> Otherwise we'd be here for a whole week. Um, however, there's that first phrase you've probably heard, thus have I heard, or in this case it's translated as I have heard that. Um, the question is, who is this I here? Traditionally, they say it's Ananda. The, the tradition is that after the Buddha passed away, Mahagasapa was concerned that the Buddha's teachings would disappear or that they would get garbled. And so he called amongst, the monks together, decided to have a, a meeting of the Arahants to decide how we're going to standardize the Buddha's teachings to be passed on. And Ananda was the, the member of the, the council who was in charge of reciting the, uh, the suttas and Ubali, who had been the barber for the Sakyan clan, who had become an expert on discipline, was going to recite the Vinya, or discipline. Um, <clears throat> However, if you look at this I have heard, it, it applies to all the suttas, even in the ones where Ananda appears as one of the characters. So in that case, it wasn't just what Ananda had heard. I think it's more profitable to look at this in, in terms of I have heard is whoever is reciting the sutta whoever's telling you the sutta, this is the basis of their knowledge. There's one of the suttas, Majjhima 95, where the Buddha talks about how you preserve the truth and how you arrive at the truth. And preserving the truth is being very clear about what's the basis for what you're about to say. What's the basis for this truth that you believe in? Is it something you've heard? Is it something you've directly experienced? Is it something you've attained in yourself? And if it's something you've only heard, it's still on a pretty low level. You, know, you haven't proven it to yourself. And so in this sense, the, these suttas are things that people have heard and passed on. The proof, of course, of the proof of the pudding is in the eating. In other words, if you take the, the teachings and you put them into practice, then it becomes something more than what you've just heard. It becomes something that you really know. So each sutta begins with a reminder, okay, this is just something that's been passed down. You can't take it 100%. We can't say we know for sure what the Buddha said. We don't know what he said. Um, but that we've heard that he has said this, and it seems reasonable. So the next thing after seeing that, that it's reasonable is you try putting it into practice and see what results. So that's the I have heard. Okay, the Blessed One was staying at Sawati in the Eastern Monastery, the palace of Megara's mother. Megara's mother is actually Megara's daughter. <laughs> they call her Megara's mother um, because she learned the Dharma from the Buddha, became a stream enterer, went back and taught her father. 
And because she was her father's teacher, they said, well, he's not just a, she's not just his daughter, she's now his mother in the Dharma. So, and this is an old palace that the family had, and so they gave it to the, the monks as a monastery. Now, in this particular rains retreat, we have an all-star cast. We have Sarabhuta, Mahamagulana, Mahagasapa, Mahagachayana, Mahagotita, and all the rest that are listed right there, and other well-known elder disciples. And it, the, Buddha, the passage talks about how the monks were, were in training and very serious about their training, and as they say, we're, we're discerning grand successive distinctions. In other words, they were attaining various levels of awakening. Okay, now then, on, on that occasion, the Abhosita day of the 15th, the full moon night of the Bawadana ceremony, Okay, Ubosita is an old pre-Buddhist tradition they had in India of taking, basically taking the days off of the full moon, the new moon, sometimes the half moons, as a day of rest, as a day devoted to Dharma. And the Buddhists, the Buddhists took on this, uh, this tradition. For the lay people, it became traditional for the lay people to take the eight precepts on the Ubosita day. And for the monks, became traditional that on the 15th of Osa day, in other words, the day of the full moon, the day of the new moon, um, they would recite their Bhatimokha, which was their code of discipline. Except for this day of the Bawadana ceremony. The word Bawadana means invitation. At the end of the rains retreat, which is the full moon in October, um, which marks the end of the rains retreat, the monks are supposed to invite each other to question any of the monks in the community about their behavior. Normally it's a tradition in, in Buddhism that if you suspect somebody of a, mis, of a misdeed, um, or you've seen it, or you've heard it, and you want to talk to them about it, you first ask their permission. Say, I have an issue with you. Can we talk about it? Now, can, can you think of all the disputes that would be solved by that one? If people just said, you know, if I have an issue with you, I want to talk to you about it, will you give me your permission to talk about it? I actually had one case um, where I got a letter from a monk that was filled with abuse, verbal abuse. Okay. And I wrote back and said, can I talk to you about this letter? <laughs> and he wrote back and he said, no. <laughs> so that was the end of that relationship. <laughs> um, but anyway, on the Bawadana day, every monk in, this, in the assembly invites everybody else. Okay, you have my permission. If you have any issues, any suspicions about my misbehavior, my misdeeds during this past three months, I give you permission now to speak. And the tradition is once that invitation has been given, that marks the end of the rains retreat. The next day, everybody can go wherever they want. And that's the, the end of their time spent together. However, if um, they find that this has been a very congenial community, everybody likes practicing with everybody else, nobody has any doubts, you can delay the invitation, which is what the Buddha does here. So let's delay it for another month. We want to stick together as a group. Everybody's meditating well, this is a good congenial uh, environment for practice, let's keep it going. So that's exactly what the Buddha does. He says, I'm content with this practice. I'm content at heart with this practice, so arouse even more intense persistence for the attaining of the as-yet-as-yet as yet unattained, the reaching of the as-yet-unreached, the realization of the as-yet-unreached, realized, excuse me. I will remain right here at Savati for another month, the, what they call the White Water Lily Month. That's the month in November when the water lilies all bloom in India. If you've ever been in India in November, that's, it's, still, it's still happening. Global warming hasn't changed that yet. So, that's basically the, the introduction to the topic 
of the of the of breath meditation. In other words, basically they're trying to establish how important this teaching is. You've got all the famous monks gathered. The monks are serious in their practice. The Buddha is content with their practice. Obviously, they're doing something right. Okay. So the Buddha goes on <coughs> at the bottom of the page. Okay, at the end of the month, that, that's, that's extra month. Now this is this is the longest you can delay this for what in a ceremony is one month. At the end of the full moon in November, you have that ceremony, and then everybody goes off wandering. And so the Buddha goes into a description of what a really good assembly of monks this is. He says it's free from idle chatter, devoid of idle chatter, and is established on pure heartwood. This is the next to last paragraph on page one. This sort of assembly that is worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of respect, an incomparable field of merit for the world. Such is this community of monks, such is this assembly. Um, the, field, the idea of the field of merit is that any gift given to these people is like a seed that's put in a good field. It grows well. Um, the sort of assembly to which, and this is an explanation of this seat, to, uh, to which a small gift when given becomes great, and a great gift greater, such as this assembly of monks. The sort of assembly that is rare to see in the world. It would be worth traveling for a light leagues, taking long provisions in order to see them. <laughs> I.e., this is a really good group of monks. <laughs> okay, then he goes in and he starts describing them. And this is where he gets into uh, a description of the stages of awakening. Here he's setting forth the, the whole purpose of you know, why do you do breath meditation? Is it simply so you can learn how to relate to your body in a nice way in the present moment? It's actually more than this. People who follow this practice, there are some who are arahants, whose mental effluence, sometimes the word is tra translated as fermentations. The Pali word is asava. <coughs> there are actually four kinds of asava. There's sensual desire, becoming, which we'll get back to in a minute, Views and ignorance. These are things that flow out of the mind. The mind flows out to, with its particular issues in its sensory experience or sensory in input. Don't think that when something comes into your senses, it comes to a blank slate. How many people in here have a blank slate? We all have our agendas. We all have our uh, desires. One is we're attached to our sensual desire. I think the Buddha's uh, discussion of sensual desire is really fascinating. He says, we're not, our, we're not attached to our, the objects of our desire as much as we're attached to the desire itself. Desire is something we enjoy doing. Um, and if the desire gets frustrated in one thing, you know, if you're, um, if you're told that you can't have this uh, container of water, you'll find something else that you want to desire. It's very quick and very easy for the mind to shift from one thing to the next. Um, some things are more difficult. But you find eventually the mind does have this tendency to shift its objects of desire around, even when it's been a very intense and very pleasurable relationship with someone else. That, that can shift very quickly. In some cases, in other cases, it can shift. It takes a long, long time to shift. But if we were told that you can't have this and at the same time you can't desire anything else, the mind would really rebel. Our sense of desire is our sense of freedom. And one of the most difficult parts of the Buddha's teachings is where he has to focus on the issue of how do you use desire in order to overcome desire and to sell people on the idea that maybe there's even greater freeing by being able to put an end to desire in a skillful way. Okay, that's the first of the effluence, essential desire. The second one, becoming, is the mind's way of creating mental worlds. 
We do this all the time. You can just sit here and think of think of New York. Okay, and you've got a little picture of New York in your mind, depending on and it can be more detailed depending on how long you were there or how much you've read about it. But you then can create New York and you can actually think of yourself going into this little world you have. The creation of the metal world is becoming. Going into the metal world is birth. And we do this on a small scale all the time. And it's an effluent in the sense that we try to, once we have these little worlds, we try to make reality conform to that little world. That's, that's when it becomes an effluent. The most obvious way that you can see this most blatantly is when you fall asleep at night. You're sort of sitting there breathing, calm, your mind is wandering. All of a sudden you're not in your body anymore, you're someplace else. This vision of some other place will appear. That's becoming, and then you go into it, i.e. you fall asleep and start dreaming. That's birth. And it's a parallel process when you die. They talk about how these visions will appear to people. Um, two kinds of visions, basically. One is remembrance of things you've done in the past, which can either be very good or very bad. And then the next vision will be of where you're going to go next. And it may be associated with that particular particular action. Um, in Thailand, there's, this, uh, there's an author who's written a whole series of books called The Law of Karma. It's a series of short stories, and he insists that the short stories are at least based in, in actual events. And some are, are actual simple reports of actual events, and others are a little bit more dressed up to make them dramatic short stories. And when the monastery where I first stayed in Thailand, one of the monks liked to pull out this book for his Dharma talks. And, and the place where we were staying, the, the people were, you know, not that much into the drama. They came, they wanted to make merit and go home. And so he, he tried to pull out the most gripping of the stories. Number one story in particular, everybody was absolutely quiet throughout the whole story. It was the story of a butcher facing death. And um, many, of the, many of the farmers there in Thailand had killed animals in the past. So when they talk about how the butcher are lying on his deathbed, starts suddenly screaming like a pig about to be killed. You could have heard a pin drop. <laughs> This is, the, this is the butcher going through that vision of what he'd done in the past. And oftentimes, if you allow your mind to be affected by those visions, then the next step is that a vision of where you're going to go as a result of that action. And the mind will follow that vision. You, you reach a point where you can't stay in the body. What can you grab onto? A vision appears in the mind, you go. That's becoming, and then you find yourself plunk in the middle of that becoming, and that's birth. That's the second of the affluence. The third is views, holding to views, and holding to views here, in the Buddhist sense, means not only having a, a, an idea, okay, what I think is right and everybody else is wrong. It can also include views like, I don't know, agnosticism is the best position to take. I mean, you take a position, basically. You can take a position of skepticism. You can take a position of saying all views can be true in one way or another. Um, if you hold to that as your position, that's, that's, take, that's an effluent or fermentation of views. The Buddha's got you except for one way. If you use a view as a tool, he says, okay, then you see that what does this view do to you? What does it lead it? What does it lead you to do? What are the results of those actions? And if you find that they reduce suffering, okay, that's a good view to use as a tool. It's a very pragmatic approach to views. And finally, ignorance is the last of the effluence, and that's not looking at things in terms of the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths are not just a list of truths to remember. They're a framework 
for looking at your experience. Look for where there's suffering or where there's stress. And then try to see what's causing that stress. And then do what you can to, to put an end to that stress so you can realize the end, of the, the end of the stress. That's seeing things in terms of the Four Noble Truths. Looking at things in any other way, through any other framework, would be ignorance from this point of view. So the Arahants are people who have abandoned all of these effluents or fermentations. The word effluent is used because it's, it's about as literal as a translation as you can get. The word in Pali, asava, means something that flows out. And this also adds the idea that it flows out and it's sticky. <laughs> really, that's, that's one of the intended meanings. The other meaning is often used some, uh, translation is fermentation, the idea that these things come bubbling up out of the mind and get you intoxicated. Because the word for wine in Pali is also asava. Fruit wine would be what a palasava or something like that. These are things that intoxicate the mind. Okay, the Arahants have abandoned these effluents. They've attained the goal, laid waste to the fetter of becoming, and are released through, through right gnosis or right knowledge. Okay, such are the monks in this community of monks. <coughs> Actually, we're going to have to read through these backwards. Because the Buddha goes down to the list of the four, four noble attainments. And let's start, let's see... And the, the paragraph that says, In this community of monks are the monks who, with the wasting away of the first three fetters, are stream winners, steadfast, never destined for states of woe, headed for self-awakening. Okay, what are those three fetters? The first one is self-identification, you know, identifying the five khandas as you or yours, or identifying yourself, defining your sense of self around the five aggregates. The aggregates are form, feeling, perception, fabrication and consciousness, sensory consciousness. And you can define your sense of self in any of four ways. Take the body, for instance, your sense of the body, the form of the body. When you close your eyes, that's the form of the body, how you sense what you've got here. Okay, you can either identify yourself, this, this is me, or you can say, this is mine. I have a self that's something else from the body, but the body is belongs to this sense of self. Or you can say that I, myself, is in the body, I don't know if you were raised Christian, but if you had the idea that you have this soul, it's this little thing inside you someplace, this little picture of this little homunculus that's living inside your body. I was very unimaginative in how I imagined the soul. I thought it was kind of like a little piece of leather, like the, the, the sole in your bottom of your shoe. <laughs> that was my mental image. My older brother says his mental image, I don't know where he got this one, was a rusty tin can with a rod through it. <laughs> That was his soul. <laughs> so you might have the idea that you have this little spark of spirit inside you, that that's your true self that's inhabiting the body. That's one way of defining the self with reference to the body. And then the final way is seeing the body as in yourself. This could be just kind of a, an astral body sort of self that surrounds the body, or it could be an infinite self. The Buddha's not talking here just about separate self or small self. He's talking about any kind of idea of self, which could be cosmic, infinite. Still, so you have this body that moves within the infinity of yourself. And the Buddha says, you, when, with, the, with the experience of stream entry, when the mind touches the deathless, or sees the deathless, as they say, you realize, okay, that any 
You know, at that point, all the aggregates fall away, and you can't really identify yourself in regard to any of those. So that's how stream entry puts an end to self-identification views. You can't say specifically, myself is X anymore. And you can't define it in terms of, in terms of the five aggregates because they fall away, and yet there still is an awareness of the deathless. Um, this experience, because you know that you did this based on developing your intentions, okay, your attachments to rites and pre precepts or precepts and rituals and practices, that also falls away. And then finally, you have no doubt about the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, because you've seen that what the Buddha taught was true. And this is where you prove the truth of these teachings. Okay, there is a deathless, it is an end of suffering. You're not totally there yet, but you've seen it and you know it for sure. Because those are the three fetters you, end, you put away. Self-identification, um, attachments to rites and rituals or precepts and practices, literally. And then finally, um, uncertainty about the, the Triple Gem. Any questions about those fetters before we go on? Or shall we finish the, finish the attainments and then stop? Okay. okay, the next one, moving up. We have the once returners who have abandoned the three fetters and they, have, they say there's the attenuation of passion, aversion, and delusion. Now, nowhere does it explain exactly how attenuated these, these guys are, these women are. But the, the distinction about these is that they're going to return only once more to this world. In other words, they will, they have the opportunity of going to the different levels of heaven if they want. Oh, I forgot to say, the stream enters will, will not fall below the human realm in any of their future rebirths. There's another place where they say they're never destined for more than seven rebirths. And of those seven, they'll never fall, fall below the human realm. Once returners are going to come back once as human beings and become arahants. Move up the community of monks, there are monks who are the wasting away of the five lower fetters. Now the five lower fetters are the three we just mentioned, plus sensual passion and irritation. The two go together. If you don't have passion for sensual desires, and again, they're, again they have seen enough of the deathless so it actually puts an end to their sensual desire. They can't, there's no passion for anything sensual or sensory anymore. And because there's no passion for these, there's no irritation when they don't get sensual pleasures. I once had a dream that the world was made out of two kinds of people, dreamers and criminals. And the two go together. You, know, you dream and then you go out looking for what you dream. And you don't get it, you become a criminal. <laughs> so that's how those two fetters go together. The fetter of becoming that was mentioned in that paragraph on, on Arahant's is actually broken down into five. Let's finish with the non-returners. Okay. Okay, the wasting away of the five lower fetters, they're due to be reborn in what are called the pure abodes. Now these are realm, Brahma realms, up in the realm of form. And once they get up there, they're not coming back. They will attain awakening in those realms. As for arahants, they don't get, they don't take rebirth at all. And the fetter of becoming that was mentioned in that one paragraph, the very last line on the first page, is actually composed of five fetters. One is passion for form, the sense of form that you inhabit when the mind is really deep in concentration, based on the sense of the body. Second one is passion for formlessness, and this this is passion for any formless experience. It could be an experience of space, 
experience of unlimited consciousness, an experience of nothingness, or even some of the more refined states of concentration that don't even have objects. Okay, you abandon your passion for that. Um, that's the end of restlessness, in which this case is the restlessness to, you know, I want to get on to nirvana right away, I want to finish up and not do the work properly. There is no conceit. The fetter of conceit is when is not when you think just think you're better than other people, but it's when you compare yourself of I am this and it is either better than what other people are, or worse than what other people are, or equal to what other people are. It's a sense of identifying you know, this is me and you compare your me with other people's me. There's there's the end of that. And finally there's the end of ignorance. The arahants at all times will see things in terms of the four noble truths. So those are the five fetters that the arahants drop when they drop this fetter of becoming. So there you have the four noble attainments. And traditionally, the, the original meaning of the word sangha meant those four, in terms of the noble sangha. And then there's the monastic sangha, which is just the monks who, and anybody who ordains, any nun who ordains. That's called the conventional sangha. And then there's the Vipassana Sangha, which was a totally new invention. <laughs> which, as far as I can trace it out, the idea that just anybody who wants to be a Buddhist is a member of the Sangha, that goes back to Sangharakshita. He was um, a British monk who studied in, in India for a while, came back and said, enough of this monk stuff. We want everybody to be a member of the Sangha. Actually, Buddhism already has a perfectly good word that includes everybody who is a Buddhist, and that's Bodhisattva. P-A-R-I-S-A. You might want to try it on for, for a little bit. P-A-R-I-S-A. Parisa. It covers all monks, nuns, lay women, and lay men who have taken refuge in the, in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So if you have a Sangha newsletter, you might want to change it to a Parisa newsletter. Because <laughs> if you're going to take refuge in the Sangha, and the person sitting next to you was wearing a nylon jacket. <laughs> it's hard to think of that person as your refuge, you know? <laughs> so. so for the sake of, you know, what, what does refuge mean? It means you take the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha as your example on how to find true happiness. Refuge has a, has a higher meaning than just a, a sense of, you know, the sense of support you get sitting, everybody sitting together in the same room meditating. This refuge goes deeper than that. It's something that you really want to take as an example and you want to in, in see what good qualities the Sangha has and you want to in, internalize them. You want to make them your, your own qualities so that you can become a member of that kind of Sangha and you truly can become a refuge yourself. Okay. Okay, that's, that's the Noble Sangha. Now, in addition to the members of the Noble, noble Sangha in this particular community of monks, there are monks who are devoted to the development of the four frames of reference. That's also translated many times as foundations of mindfulness or establishings of mindfulness. The four right exertions, the four bases of power, the five faculties, the five strengths, the six, seven factors for awakening an eightfold noble path. And we could be here all day discussing those. However, there's a book on the table. <laughs> These are called The Wings to Awakening. The Buddha, toward the end of his life, called the monks together and said, okay, if you want to maintain the teachings, maintain these seven sets of teachings. This was the essence, he said, of what he had taught. 
So you have monks who are devoted to these practices. You have monks who, in the next paragraph, are devoted to the development of goodwill, compassion, equanimity, excuse me, appreciation and equanimity. They're devoted to the perception of the foulness of the body or the perception of inconstancy, sometimes called the perception of not-self. Excuse me, perception of impermanence. It's interesting that this impermanence or inconstancy is often called one of the three characteristics. If you do a search in the Pali Canon, you can never find the word three characteristics. You never find the word, the characteristic of impermanence or any of these as, as characteristics. They're all taught as perceptions. These are perceptions that you apply to your experience. You look for the inconstancy in things. You look for the um, stress in things. You look at the non-selfness of things as a meditative practice. Finally, he said, okay, in this community of monks, there are monks who remain devoted to the mindfulness of in and out breathing. It took him all this time to get there. <laughs> now you can imagine if the Buddha had to write this for a magazine, they would say, okay, we want everything in the first paragraph. You know, hook the reader right from the beginning. Um, <laughs> 2,500 years ago, people were more relaxed. <laughs> and also, this is... Uh, a very important technique, I think, in, in, in Dharma talks is sometimes you don't go straight to the matter in the straight paragraph because it would knock people off their feet. Um, especially if you, know, if you see somebody in the community who has been lying, you don't say, okay, tonight's Dharma talk is going to be on lying. You know, and people get very defensive right away and they sort of put up a, a barrier. They don't want to hear about lying. They know that they've, that they've been caught lying. However, you can start about something about, oh, something a little bit more vague, like the, the Noble Path, and the Noble Path is a good path to be on, and it's, all, it's good for everybody, it's good for you, it's good for the people around you. What is this Noble Path composed of? And you start going down right view and right, right resolve, and then all of a sudden there's right speech. And you've got to touch on right speech, and then you move on. That way, the person is kind of relaxed, they don't feel like they're being attacked, and you can get your message in and then move on. So, which is why Magazine articles are not the ideal place to discuss Dharma. <laughs> Just wanted to get that off my chest. <laughs> okay, so now the Buddha is going to explain mindfulness of in and out breathing. But before he explains mindfulness of in and out breathing, here he does have a hook. And the hook is this. If you do mindfulness of in and out breathing when developed and pursued, it's of great fruit and great benefit. In other words, it's going to be good for you. In a big time. Mindfulness of in and out breathing, when developed and pursued, brings the four frames of reference to their culmination, or the four establishments of mindfulness. The four frames of reference, when developed and pursued, bring the seven factors for awakening to their culmination. The seven factors for awakening, when developed and pursued, bring clear knowing and release to their culmination. In other words, this is not just an introductory path. You do mindfulness of breathing and then drop it and go on to something that's more important. That in and of itself, you, you do, do this and you get the four frames of reference, they get developed. Seven Factors for awakening get developed and clear knowing and release. In other words, you know, the attainment of nirvana. So, in and of itself, mindfulness of breathing covers all of these things. That's an important point because all too many times you hear mindfulness of in and out breathing as something you do for the first three days of the retreat and then you move on to vipassana, something better. The Buddha says, stick with it. But it's not just being, you know, staying at the tip of your nose. He's saying that there's, there are actually these six, uh, 16 steps, which we'll get to in a minute. But first, I'd like to break for questions. Any questions on the first two pages of the, of the discourse?
Yes. Um, the five lower fetters were, um, you mentioned the three plus sexual passion and... Irritation. Irritation, yeah. Is the mic on? Is the mic on? Okay. Uh, various, uh, I don't know what to call them, but the um, different focuses. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm just wondering, is this monks devoted? Does that mean... They stay with it for a period of time, or are they devoted to all uh, um, the wings of awakening, for instance? Or um, I'm just wondering what the devotion part meant. That the Means that you stick with them. For that's their practice. Right. That's mm-hmm. their. Mm-hmm. And um, the the, um, the way the Buddha explains these different wings to awakening is that you can do any one of them, and it covers the path. And you find that different people relate to different explanations. For me, the seven factors for awakening will always seem very congenial. You start with mindfulness, and then you analyze things, and then you get into concentration. Other people find any one of the sets, or you may find that one set you know, really speaks to you at one part of your practice, and then another set speaks at another part. But they're all, they're all considered to be equivalent. Now, in that next paragraph, where they're being focused to developing goodwill, compassion, etc., um, this is usually in response to a particular tendency that you might have. And if you find that you really have trouble wishing yourself well, okay, it's time we work on goodwill for a while. Um, and there are different ways of approaching the development of goodwill. One is um, the one that you find in the Mahasi tradition, where you're just trying to think passages of goodwill over and over and over and over in your head. In the forest tradition, it's more a sense of starting out the day and then repeatedly through the day, reminding yourself of what's your intention in practicing, um, so, you know, spreading goodwill for everybody, and then basically getting back to your meditation object, which might be a meditation word or the breath. Um, I find focusing on the breath, and this is not med- mentioned in the text, but focusing on the breath, if you can get a sense of goodwill for your breath, it then can become a basis for goodwill that you can feel for yourself in other ways and then goodwill you feel for other people. I personally would find the idea of going, through, taking goodwill phrases and running them through my head all day, I would rebel. Mm-hmm. It's like watching the sound of music and wanting to go over and kick over a baby carriage. <laughs> 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. I was going to save the discussion for the actual technique for the 16 steps, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. I have a question about your translation. Mm-hmm. On the, uh, usually, um, you, you talk about the four frames of reference. Mm-hmm. Uh, I usually think of that as the four foundations of mindfulness. Why right. do you translate it in that particular way? Um, one is, I personally found that useful in my own practice to think of it in an idiomatic term in English. You think of foundation of mindfulness. You go out and people, people talk to people on the street. What is your foundation of mindfulness? And they look at you funny. But you can ask people when they're talking about something, what's your frame of reference? 
this is something you're referring all your experience to. You can refer it to the body. In other words, you take the body not only as your object, but when things come at you, 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 you primarily look at them in terms of the effect they're having on your body. If things happen in the mind, okay, look at them not so much as the content of the, the thought, but okay, where in the body is there tension that corresponds to that thought? And this way you maintain the body as your frame of reference throughout. I was going to get into more detail on this in a, in this afternoon, because it it's still a problematic translation. Because it's not just the frame that you're focusing on here, it's also the establishing of a whole process of mind, establishing this. So it's a process rather than just a thing that you're focused on. How do you get settled in a frame of reference, and then how do you use that frame of reference to relate to other things? So it's a whole process that we're working on. But I, I, you know, I found frame of reference to be a good idiomatic way of presenting that. Any questions? Okay. Okay. Let's sort of generally work over, okay? <laughs> Mike here. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. You mentioned um, two items before and after the word parissa. Mm-hmm. And one was uh, someone who said, okay, enough of this monk stuff. And I didn't yeah. catch that name. Sangha Rakshita? Rakshita. Rakshita, R-A-K-S-I-T-A or S-H-I-T-A. I don't know how he does it. And, and Sangha Rakshita? When? When? In the 1950s. Okay. And then the other item was, um, I missed some of the verbiage, you can become a refuge to yourself when right. preceded that. Okay, when you develop the qualities of the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha in yourself, okay, now you have an internal refuge. And, then, and when you have that kind of internal refuge, and you say, and especially if you become a member of the Noble Sangha, you're counted as now a refuge for other people as well. And how do you get away from that semantical dilemma of that word self within that context? Okay. The Buddha never said there is no self. He never said there was a self. He says self is an activity that we do. He calls it eye-making and my-making. And to the extent that it's skillful, he, he encourages it. I mean, there, there's a passage where he says the self is its own mainstay, the self is its own um, refuge. And it's going to be its own refuge only when you become a self, you know, a very responsible person and develop these qualities that you can depend on. And that would fall also to the word attachment to a practice if it's for skillful uh, right. mm-hmm. means. Right. Like, the attachment is acceptable. Right, yes. It's like you know, taking the raft across the river. Yeah. You've, seen, you've heard of that image. You know, get to the other side of the river, you can abandon the raft. Don't abandon it until you get to the other side of the river. You've got to hold on. Okay. Yeah. And there are many passages where the Buddha makes that, makes that point, is that while you're on the path, you do hold on. It's not counted as clinging. Or if it is, it's counted as a skillful kind of clinging. You, you let go totally only when you don't really need to let need to hold on anymore. Okay, yeah. thank you. <laughs>